The following presentation is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that it will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. Concentrate this morning on just verses 2 and 4. Um, there's so much in that, there's, there's times when I, I, I 
Jesus came to our feet on each single section around that famous life. So last week you might remember we drew attention to drew attention to verse one, uh, which introduces the word of the Hebrews and touched upon these two words. God spoke. You know, I tried to sort of narrow our attention even clearer to that focus on the fact that God has imbued us with longings and desires that only He can satisfy. So we'll move on from that this morning, but today I'm going to draw attention to verses 2 and 3. So we have long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but, but, in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. But, what a powerful word. It's a word that divides, separates. It's a word that compares and contrasts. It's a strong word. It's a word that provides an alternative, another option. You know, professional historians divide history into eras, you know, ancient history and medieval history and modern history, or dynasties, or, or reigns, or before and after wars, and so on and so forth. And, and such divisions are generally indicative of change. Something new has entered into the human story, or the story of a particular society. But it also acknowledges that although something new has emerged, there is continuity to what has gone before. There are still similar effects. And this is just like that. There is that which has gone before. Long ago, many ways, and all that stuff. And that which is now. But, in these last days. So, the but that the writer of Hebrews introduces us to is much more than that. It embraces the whole human story. It embraces God's story of redemption. And therefore, it's applicable to right now, no matter where we live in the world. So there is a time when God spoke through the prophets, and there is now. It's this passage called these last days, when God has spoken through His Son. The, the coming of the Son is the dividing point of history. The coming of the Son is the dividing point. And being aware of this is foundational to the purpose of the letter to the Hebrews. The writer, remember, exhorts his readers to remain resolute in following Jesus and resist any temptation to return to their former practices. Why? Guess what? This letter. The revelation of God in and through Jesus is superior to all that God has revealed in the prophets. Before his coming. And that is what the body of the letter addresses and it seeks to demonstrate. So at the outset, the writer declares that what God has revealed, spoken to us by his Son, is better than what was revealed by God through the prophets. Why? Because the agent is better. The conduit of that message is better. Jesus is better by virtue of his being. A son, and it's interesting in the Hebrew, uh, in the Greek, literally, it is a son, it's not his son. This is only simply declaring that the fact that this person is divine makes the message better. The conduit itself, the agent, is better, superior. The prophets were mere men, mortal, sinful, 
those who've gone before were missing. And the bottom of the letter elaborates on this and demonstrates this. Not just outlines some but that was really briefly. So the letter's closed, for example, it deals with the fear of the angels in the first couple of chapters. You can go home and read it yourself. You can go back and have a little bit of detail of the text. Jesus' offer of rest is superior to the promise of rest spoken of in the wilderness as the people of Israel moving towards the promised land. Jesus' authority is greater than the authority of the greatest prophet of Old Testament times, Moses. Jesus' priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. It's never ending. It's permanent. Jesus' presence is greater than the temple. And his sacrifice is superior to the whole sacrificial system. For his sacrifice requires no repeating. It achieves its purpose. Yet, we must never dismiss the Old Testament. We can't just sit around and say, oh, I don't want to read the New Testament, I don't like the New Testament, I'm not the thing. We must never dismiss the Old Testament as no longer relevant, for it's the Old Testament that establishes all the categories that make sense of who Jesus is. Without the Old Testament, we just couldn't get it. We could think in terms of God's revelation or imagine God's revelation as kind of like a, a tied up play. For those who are into you know, Shakespeare's or a tied up play, the Old Testament is like the first four acts. That is everything, something happens, it's almost there, and bad stuff gets worse and worse, and then, you know, main character is not so frequent. But in order for the premise of the play, the main theme, the idea of the play to be resolved in that part, the New Testament, the play of Jesus, is that part. It makes sense of all that has gone before. It resolves all the problems that have been mentioned and come of the problems in that world at the time. Jesus, in his person and his work, completes the play. Just a, again, a simple example, by the end of the Old Testament, we, we're presented with a God of both justice and mercy. See that? The end of the Old Testament is that God is God of justice and mercy. He promises both. But those two characteristics, those two promises, are actually incompatible. How can there be justice and mercy? If you forgive stuff and there is no justice, then justice is going to be if we have only justice, mercy is not possible because we are sinners. And, we, and our sin demands truth, demands a response. But the problem is solved in our problem. The problem is solved in Because justice is served by Jesus' death. Sin is punished because he stands in our place and accepts our punishment. But this is a last problem. In a sense, the release from that is justice of himself and be merciful. God can be merciful because justice and the man's justice have been understood. Mercy is now possible without compromising the justice of God. So 
discussing in the coming of Jesus, God has successfully mounted to history. By revealing the greatest eternal reality this world has ever seen. So, here's the question. You might guess that I might say Jesus has got a great life coming. It may be the only thing you remember. Yes, I remember those. This is better because he has in his person work fulfilled or completed God's redemptive plan. And that's something that can't be said of the prophets. Also, in that, I'd like to say, God has spoken in these last days. It suggests then that that's it. There is no more. God has spoken to Jesus in these last days. Christ entering into human history as a man has ushered in the end of time. It's inaugurated the final period of history, but the last days then is the period which begins with Jesus' first coming and ends with his second coming. You know, the Jews were awaiting these last days. Now, in those last days, they've been prophesied and spoken of in a whole variety of ways and in, in a range of contexts right through Israel's history. Jews and you know, Israelites expected the coming of the promised Messiah. He does in the last days. This is revealed at, at lots of times and in lots of ways, and many times in many ways throughout the Old Testament. For instance, it is promised in the covenant of promise made with Abraham, Abraham that Israel, or well, through Israel, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's found in God's promise that a new prophet like Moses will be raised up and speak God's words to God's people in Deuteronomy 18. It's anticipated in the covenant with David that his descendant will be king forever. Psalm 110 prophesies that a king and a priest, or prophesies the coming of a king and a priest who will execute judgment. The establishing of a new covenant is declared by God through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, where he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. Not like the covenant, rather, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So he did. He speaks out in my word. But Peter, who quotes Joel in Acts 2 in his sermon at Pentecost, when he declared that the speaking in tongues of the ordinance of witness, um, heard coming from the mouths of the apostles was actually a fulfillment of prophecy concerning what? The last days. And therefore part of the proof that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. In Acts 2.17 it says, And in these last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. These are the days that we now live in. It's a privileged time. God has spoken His final word in Christ and this time, dare I say, opportunity for us to respond. There's a time for believers to spread the gospel faithfully because we have that responsibility. We have the good news that Jesus is best. Jesus is better for he has been appointed heir of all things. Again, probably not true of the apostles. Here, 
things, to all things that is our life. David speaks of it in Psalm 2. says, I will tell you of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make your nations your heritage. The ends of the earth will possess you. And notice in that, in this whole idea of being appointed heir, heir of all things, that's a reversal. Normally, if you're an heir, your parents or someone older have died. The son who gets inherited is on the death of his father. But in this case, it's the son that takes of his royal inheritance at his own death. You see, it's um, started upon in Philippians chapter 2. And being found in human forms, in human creatures, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even, even death on a cross. And death, even is the express here because it's the most appalling death. Therefore, therefore, God has exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every name is above, so that every name in heaven and earth and under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, the glory of God Father. The writer of Hebrews to Jesus sees that only God can do. The attributes that only God has. He's like great. It's another declaration of Jesus' glory. He is the Son of God. He owns all that exists, and he's the one who gives all that exists. The great, great wonder of it then is that Jesus then did that. Jesus took on flesh. As if it is to death, the very antithesis of God's purpose in making the world, because He made the world. And as a consequence of this, He inherited that which He had made. And He took all away. It's also probably worth noting that. The words translated as the world or the universe in Ambrosia by Keith Nomos means actually the ages. And so that's not all encompassing terms. The term that includes the universe and everything in it throughout all time. The universe is everything throughout the ages. When we realize this, really we're compelled to acknowledge that He is truly the Alpha and Omega. From the last of the beginning, he is in fact sovereign over all. Sovereign over all. I think uh, 1 Corinthians 8 6 captures the idea of giving clarity and all that. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. 
expecting an update of the purpose of creation. For whom? Through whom? Verse 4 of Hebrews 1, we're told that Jesus is better because he is the one who upholds the universe as they endure. Because he's the decision of the upholds the universe by the word of his power. Way beyond the limit of purpose. See, Jesus carries the universe. That's the sense of that word uphold, is carries, it bears. Not only has he created all that is, he bears it, carries it. Thus, he is the one who sustains everything that he has made. And the reality is, if he stopped doing that, everything would stop existing. He only exists as he not only created it, but he continues by the word of his power to cause it to continue to exist and sustain. See, everything is completely contingent. Everything is completely reliant upon the word of his power for both its initial existence. And it's ongoing existence. And he bears the universe as it moves towards its consummation, its end point. So everything that God intends will happen. Jesus sovereignly demands it and makes it certain. He rules over that which has been, that which is, and that which is to come. As I thought about that, I, I sort of wondered. What do you think that we act or think differently from the way we do now? What if we took uh, this particular verse in Colossians chapter 2 of the verse? It says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him, rooting and built up in him, establishing the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in truth. And what if we really acknowledge the idea that God is truly sovereign, that He is controlled of all things, that all things are worked towards the end of Jesus' faith. If we really do treat Jesus as Lord, sometimes the word people say, Yes, He's our Savior. Yes, He's Lord of us. We are submitted to His Lordship. Not by doing that. I wonder if we really thought that we might make it become Lord. I wonder. If we accepted that reality, then we would be conscious that we might be a little less anxious. I wonder if we uh, accepted that as something real and that we could do take on our well-being, that we are, that God is in charge of everything. I wonder if we'd be a little less despairing about the advice of the gospel, even in our own comfort. When we see the gospel was bubbled on all sides, we see the numbers of churches in the community. We see mockery. We had the, uh, the gay marriage artists um, last evening. Now, so we have these kinds of things that are beginning to dominate within our community. Maybe I'm sure we really accepted that God is sovereign, that Jesus is Lord, but we feel less despairing about what's right, but we don't see the purpose of the gospel or the purpose. Just as we've heard this morning in those uh, testimonies of the impact of the Word of God for the world of Jesus. And then, you know, from my own story, when 
I began to think about how many more often than we can even have no real system back on the wall. Somehow I thought maybe we need to have these good ideas. Since I had no one to account for, I just got to think of it. By the beginning, work my way through, and as I mentioned last week, underline the dumb bits. And I thought there was a dumb bit. The easier is how God will work in ways that As I did, I went from Old Testament. I opened up to things like my numbers in Deuteronomy and then Leviticus. I could tell that. But when I got to that point, I was utterly convinced that God existed. And I was utterly convinced that if God exists, God's identity being God must be worship. If you think God's, it's possible to worship God. If you have the right to understand God, then the Bible says you have to God. I think that's the question. I think I answered that Jesus. The neighbors put me to church. I think that's Jesus. Because he's the radiance of the glory of God. Now, that is just incredible. In the Old Testament, um, when we deal with the glory of God, it's often in two lights. In Exodus 24, where we see lots of things in Exodus with God appearing and lightning and fire and so on. But the glory of God dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was what? Like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain from the sight of the people of the mountain. Now, the Bible says, Look at that, that is special. But Jesus doesn't just reflect the glory of God as Moses. You remember the occasion of Moses, where when Moses um, would come down from being in the presence of God, he looked at his face because it was so bright, people around couldn't look at it. But it was reflected glory. It was like, for instance, the, the moon, which has no um, you know, light source in it, but just a little reflection of light in the sun. But Jesus isn't like Moses. He doesn't just reflect the glory of God. He is himself the shining, the bright, the brilliant one. And the little of this also just points in the transfiguration. In Matthew 17, it says, after six days, Jesus took it in Peter and John and, uh, and John's brother and opened up the heart by himself. And he, as Jesus, was transfigured before him. And his eyes, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became bright as the face of the radiant glory of God that he made in And consider also that the glory of God filled the tabernacle. As the Israelites wandered through the wilderness, the same remember, as a cloud by day and a fire by night. 
the purpose of it, the presence of God. What we call the Shekinah glory, as in the Hebrew Shekinah, which means to dwell. God's glory is the presence of His presence. And then in John 1, 25, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt. Same word. Tabernacle. Dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. The glory of the Shekinah glory. The glory of His presence. The glory of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and grace and truth. These are the way that we are coming in. Jesus is better because he is the exact imprint of his nature that is God's nature, the exact representation of his being in this world. Now, the imprint of that evidence where in John Hoffman had been formed or sealed in his being to ensure contact with God, and it represented the authority of the one whose image it was. But this phrase in Hebrews goes down much further off. Well, it specifies that Jesus is the exact imprint. Then you go to look at Ancient Scores, you can kind of recognize who's on it, but you can ask about it later. But um, the passage of the skeleton is it's good, but it's not important. But this is the exact imprint what? of his nature. And the only way someone can be the exact imprint of the very essence of God is by being God. that the Son is of the same essence as the Father. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is everything that makes God and God. And we find similar observations over the past of the New Testament. We just said, in Corinthians 4, 4, it says that Jesus is the image of God. Colossians 1, 15, it says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2, 9, says, for in whom the whole fullness of Jesus dwells bodily. Jesus is better than all those who have gone before him, for he is divine. And they are not. So this point makes a joke. Of course, I have that in my ability to go to the ground divine also, but it's a different story. Jesus is better because he is able to make purification for sins and sit down at the right hand of the majesty. Instead of what's already been said, Jesus in verse 2 and 3, He is God's Son. He's the creator and sustainer of the universe. He radiates God's glory. He is the creator of the and He radiates God's glory because He is God Himself. He is in fact the highest mind. He is by nature God. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. Romans 5.10 calls us enemies, God's enemies. You know, things don't usually say to us, they're normally extraordinary, they're normally painful. They don't usually die in the face of the world. So this kind of truth is this Jesus. This Jesus is the king who is by nature Nature, 
that God chose his master to follow his And then having sacrificed himself for our sake, what did he do? He sat back. In other words, he finished the job that he was sent to do, but the task was complete. So Jesus got in the, the sacrificial system for his sacrifice of food where animal sacrifices could not and did not. So one commentator pointed out that there was no prayer in the covenant. So the job of the high priest was never finished. But Jesus fixed it for because his job was done. In Romans 3, he says, For all have sinned, for all of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, this is relevant to the other day. Propitiation just means one who satisfies the wrath of God. Jesus has completely satisfied the wrath of God. And we can know that by faith. If Jesus had achieved real, full, final forgiveness of sin, something Jesus has always wanted for us, something all humanity needs if we are perfectly reconciled with God. Urges his readers not to neglect those great salvation, despite the hardship of the And we have the honor and the privilege of also living in these last days, in the age of Christ, to whom God has fully and finally spoken. We too are exalted to be faithful and resident.
Thanks for joining us for this presentation from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.